a seat, so that'll be great. Uh, thanks everyone for praying. I think on the Connect card it said uh, pray for the, for the boys that they would have a refreshing breakaway, and we did. So thanks uh, to those of you who were praying for that. Uh, prayers answered. Uh, the other thing was, uh, as a church, uh, I forgot to um, mention this earlier, but as a church we support a family who are a part of planting churches in Japan, in a particular part of Japan, the, the Jessup family. And uh, I just got an update from them during the week that was really encouraging. Uh, You can get on their email list if you like. You can talk to me about that. But I printed out the latest email. And so you can read about the Jessops who we partner with and know some particular ways uh, that you can be praying for them uh, over the next uh, six weeks or so. Uh, But speaking about prayer, let me pray for us uh, as we come to look at this passage. Let's pray. Oh, my gracious Father, we, uh, we do praise you that you want us to know you, that we, that we do know you because you've revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus, that you speak to us in your word. Oh, but Father, we long to know you more. Oh, we not long to know more of your plans and purposes for us as individuals, for, for this church. Oh, we long to, to grow more like our Lord Jesus, to love him more. Oh, so Father, this day we pray that you would Uh, spare us from this time being just mere information for our heads. Uh, By the power of your spirit, please take your word and plant it deeply in our hearts uh, that we would be genuinely impacted by it, transformed by it. Please give us the humility to live it out uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I do hope that uh, you've all uh, come prepared uh, with some uh, weights, perhaps, some steroids, some uh, protein powder, uh, some supplements, uh, because today we'll be doing some bodybuilding, right? That's what it's about. Some of you don't look like you're quite dressed in the right attire. I didn't give you a heads up about that. But I was thinking on my holidays uh, that uh, Paul says uh, that physical training is of some value, Right, 1 Timothy 4, and I was thinking our church has been going for over three and a half years and we've never done any physical training together. Uh, so that, that's borderline negligence. Right, so today uh, it's about bodybuilding. And clearly, of course, I've got some things to show you uh, about bodybuilding. Uh, you're fearless. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, uh, of course, you know, just jokes. Uh, but uh, We are talking about bodybuilding, aren't we? We're talking about bodybuilding today as we look at the first half of Ephesians 4, uh, but not how we can build up our physical bodies, uh, but how we can build up this body, the church, uh, the the body of Christ. Uh, That's Paul's main idea in this passage. I know that uh, because it's the only so that in the passage. If you read through the passage, there's one place where Paul says so that. In verse 11, If you look at verse 11 there, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's Paul's big idea in this section of Ephesians. It's bodybuilding. And what we're going to see in this passage is that we can build up this church, right, the body of Christ, by doing four things. It happens as we walk worthily, as we guard our unity, as we express our diversity, and as we pursue maturity. Right, so we're going to explore each of those four things as we work through this passage. So the first thing, right, building up the body of Christ happens as we walk worthily. Have a look at verse 1 there. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, or therefore, I urge you. 
Now, I say therefore because, uh, you know, if, you, if you're reading the Bible uh, and you see that word therefore, it's telling us that the, the writers are wanting us to look back to what's come beforehand, to something that precedes. Uh, and Bryce alluded to, to, to this in his intro to the whole service. Uh, Paul really is, at the start of Ephesians chapter 4, he's switching gears. Right in chapters 1 to 3, uh, he's explained in real detail uh, who we are as the church. Right? Who we are as, as God's people who've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's kind of unpacked all of that in three chapters. Uh, and now in chapters 4 to 6, uh, he's going to explain how we should live as Christians in response to God's blessing. Right? Like, therefore, how should you live? And that order is extremely important, isn't it? It's very important. And most people, if they say, what does it mean to be a Christian? They think it was the other way around. Right? They would have had Ephesians written the other way. Right? All the directions for how you should live up front and then you'll be blessed by God. That's how it works, right? That's how religion works. You tick all the right boxes, you live in a particular way and then God accepts you, he blesses you. He loves you. But Paul says it's the other way around, doesn't he? Chapters 1 to 3, God in Christ has accepted you. He's shown his mercy to you. He's loved you. He's raised you up into a position of honour and blessing. Uh, You've got every spiritual blessing in Christ. Therefore, you should live in a particular way. So that order is really important, right? Every spiritual blessing in Christ, therefore, live in this way. And so Paul says, I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling you've received. Right? In light of all these riches you've received, make sure you live in a worthy manner. Worthy. That word worthy really means self-evident, undeniable. It just makes sense, Paul's saying. Right? Yeah, Paul's saying that once you understand the fullness of God's blessing to you, It just makes sense that you would live like this. It just follows naturally. It's undeniable. So so what are some of the characteristics of this walking worthily? Tim uh, unpacked them beautifully in the kids' talk. Uh, Maybe I can add some bits to that or not. We'll see. So first, walking worthily is to be completely humble. Uh, It's really interesting that Christianity makes a big deal about humility Uh, But in Paul's day, the character trait of humility was really despised. No one wanted to be humble. Uh, uh, Only perhaps the the lowliest of slaves, the the kind of scum of the earth, uh, they would have been described as humble, uh, but no one else wanted to be humble. Uh, But then the Lord Jesus Christ comes along, right? The the, the second person of the Trinity, the one who humbled himself, uh, not just to become a human being, but to be obedient to death on the cross, uh, for your sins, for my sins. But anyway, once you understand that as a Christian, the incredible humility of Christ, uh, it only makes sense, Paul says, that you too would be completely humble. Uh, of course, some people have this idea that, that being humble is thinking less of yourself. Like being a Christian, you've got to kind of beat yourself up, you've got to practically hate yourself. That's humility, right? But that's not humility at all. Humility is not really thinking less of yourself. Uh, humility is thinking of yourself less. And it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's about looking to the interests of other people before your own, as Paul says in, in Philippians 2. 
So how does that affect community time? How does it affect how, what we think about when we gather as church? Well, the humble person, when they walk into church, knows that it's not about them. But the humble person is here to, for other people. They're forgetting about themselves. They're not absorbed with themselves. Uh, but they're thinking about how, uh, they can, who, who they can serve, who, can, who they can welcome, who they can talk to, who they can pray for, who they can encourage with a quiet word over the cup of tea or supper, you see. Because they're not completely absorbed with what's... Now, I get, like, we come... Everyone comes with their own issues. I'm not saying that you shouldn't come to be ministered to yourself. But I am saying that, that we shouldn't be completely absorbed with ourselves to the extent that we lose sight of other people. That's to be completely humble. Uh, to walk worthily is to be completely humble. A second, to, to walk worthily is to be gentle. Uh, and once again, that doesn't mean that uh, Christians have to be doormats. You don't even have to like cups of tea, although that was a good illustration, right? Uh, right? In uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says that he's gentle, right? Gentle and humble in heart. Uh, and there are places, lots of places, where uh, Jesus is clearly no pushover, right? But Jesus says he's gentle. Uh, in Paul's day, the word gentle was actually used uh, to describe a, something like, like a wild donkey uh, who'd been broken by its master. They've been kind of broken and tamed, domesticated and brought under control. That, that's this word gentleness. And that's what it means uh, when a Christian is gentle. Right? A Christian is someone who is broken before God. That's what it means. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. That's how the Christian life starts. You're broken before God because you know just how sinful you are. Right, and it's out of that kind of brokenness that a whole new degree of self-control comes. Right, so when you're, hanging, when you're spending time with people in community, when someone else sins against you, uh, you don't easily take offence. You're not quick to lash out at people. Why? Because you know just how messed up you are. You're broken before God. Right, so walking worthily is to walk in gentleness. And third, walking worthily is to be patient with others, bearing with them in love. And once again, this is an outworking of understanding what it means to be a Christian. right? Because when you become a Christian, you realise that God has put up with everything you've thrown at him. Right, you're just not that good a person. Like I'm not. Like we're stubborn, we're proud, we're irritable, we fail, uh, we're broken in all sorts of ways. And God has been patient with us, like he's born with us in love. And so Paul says it's self-evident that you would treat your brothers and sisters in Christ like that. But not that you would pretend that everything's okay when there's a real issue that needs to be addressed. That's not bearing with one another in love. That's probably harbouring bitterness, Right? But bearing with others in love uh, is being slow to anger and quick to forgive. I've got to confess that sometimes I have that the other way around, right? Quick to anger and slow to forgive. But as we bear with one another in love, it's slow to anger and quick to forgive. So that's, that's walking worthily, right? And building up this body uh, will only happen as we walk worthily. 
as we live out the implications of the gospel that we've received. At the end, in verses 3 to 6, Paul says, uh, building up this body will only happen if we guard our unity. But notice what Paul's not saying in these verses. I'm not going to read them out, verses 3 to 6. But he doesn't say that we have to work really hard to create unity. We've got to be unified, so let's work really hard at being unified. No, no, no. He says we have to guard the unity. We have to keep the unity that is already ours because we're Christians. We're already unified in the spirit. So keep that unity. And of course, guarding unity in the church, it can be really hard work. Right? The church is made up of lots of different people, people uh, of different genders, different uh, nations and classes and political views and cultures and personalities, like lots of different people thrust together. It can be really hard work to keep unity. And that's why Paul says, right? he doesn't shirk that issue, does he? He says, let's make every effort to guard our unity. Like, it can be hard work to guard our unity. And you'll see in those verses that we're to guard our unity because our, our unity as a church gives the world a concrete expression of the unity of our God. You see that there? In verse, uh, four, this is verses 4 to 6. Have a look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul reminds us that there is one body of Christ. Why is there one body of Christ? Because there's only one spirit of Christ. The spirit that unites all of us. And then in the second half of verse 4 and in verse 5, Paul reminds us that we're called to one hope and faith and baptism. Why is that? Because there's only one Lord. Right? When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you're baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus and you hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And third, in verse 6, Paul reminds us that, that there's only one Christian family because there, there's only one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. You see, where Paul's grounding this idea that we should keep our unity, we should guard our unity. Why? Not just because it's nice to be at peace with others and sing Kumbaya or something, right? We should guard our unity because it's a reflection of the unity of God, Father, Son and Spirit. It declares a theological truth to the world that we live in. So we guard as we uh, and how is it that we guard our unity? Well, there's lots of different things you could say, uh, but it's at least by walking worthily. Like this is how these verses one and two and verses uh, three to six link together. Uh, could someone grab me a, a cup of water? I've had a sore throat this week, please. <coughs> That'd be really useful. <coughs> yeah, so we, this is how these first six verses fit together, right? We, we guard our unity by walking worthily. Right? And that's because uh, what is it that creates disunity? Well, often it's pride, isn't it? It's brashness. It's a lack of self-control. It's a lack of patience with other people. It's people being quick to judge and slow to forgive. I think these are the things that are the opposite for how we should live, but those are the things that create disunity. And so as we seek to live out the implications of the gospel, that's how we guard our unity as a church. 
and that's how our body uh, will be built up. <coughs> Have a break. Sorry, that's a bit stilted, right? <coughs> anyway, uh, so verses, uh, in verses one to, uh, from verse 6 to verse 7, uh, Paul makes another transition, right? He says, as well as guarding your unity, uh, we also have to express our diversity. Uh, if you look at verse 7 there, uh, Paul says, but grace was given to each of us. Right, you see how he's switching gears. It, it's all been one this, one that, one that. It's all about unity in verses uh, 3 to 6. Uh, but now he's switching gears from the unity of all of us to the diversity of each of us. Right? Grace was given to each of us. And that can be important, right? Because sometimes uh, when you hear me say unity, you think uniformity. Like everyone's got to be the same. We've all got to be Ned Flanders cutouts or we've all got to become exactly like Aaron. No, no, thank goodness that's not the case. Unity is not uniformity. Uh, we've got to be unified, but we have to express our diversity, our different backgrounds and cultures and personalities and, in this case, our different gifts. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 8. Uh, he quotes there from Psalm 68, uh, verse 18. And if you have time to look at Psalm 68, or if you're a really quick Bible flicker, uh, you could flick back to Psalm 68. Uh, but Psalm 68 is a, what you might call a victory song. Right? It pictures God, uh, God in a kind of metaphorical sense. Right? God is, is marching in front of his people. Uh, he rescues them from Egypt. Uh, he guides them through the wilderness. Uh, and he meets with them at Mount Sinai. Uh, but then there's this beautiful moment in the psalm in verses 16 and 17. Uh, God looks across from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion uh, in Jerusalem. And it's like he says to himself, that's where I want to live. Uh, that's where I want my sanctuary to be, God says. And so in verse 18, which Paul quotes here, God ascends the slopes of Mount Zion. Uh, he's got captives in his train and he gives gifts to his people. Uh, that, that, that's Psalm 68. Uh, but as Paul writes to the, the, the Christians in Ephesus, I think he's also got uh, another scene in mind. Uh, another scene that these uh, Christians in Ephesus who are largely Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, it would have been much more familiar to them. Uh, here's the scene, right? Uh, it's when uh, a Roman general who would go out into the kind of farthest reaches of the empire, they'd win a battle, uh, they'd be victorious and they'd come back to Rome. Uh, and when they came back to Rome, uh, there'd be a massive parade in the streets. The whole city would be lining the streets. Uh, they'd be throwing rose petals onto the road. Uh, they'd be letting out uh, uh, kind of incense from their censers. Uh, and the, uh, this kind of uh, victorious general uh, would have all his captives in his train behind him. Uh, and the, the, all the people who were kind of stupid enough to oppose the might of the Roman Empire. They were there, right? Uh, but he also would bring with him the plunder from his battle wins, from his victories. Uh, and so he'd come through the city of Rome uh, and then he'd ascend to where the emperor was. He'd ascend to the right hand of the emperor, right, the, the position of greatest honour, and then he'd dispense gifts from the plunder, gifts to his people. That's what Paul's thinking about in verses 7 to 10. That's what he wants the, the Ephesians to think about. He's saying to us that the Lord Jesus Christ is like our great general. He's our victorious captain. 
of the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection, he has defeated all his enemies. He is victorious. His enemies of Satan and sin and death are like captives behind him. And now Paul says, the Lord Jesus has ascended on high to the right hand of his father. He's in the position of, of greatest honour. And from that place, he's dispensing his gifts. Dispensing gifts uh, to his people. <coughs> so what do these verses tell us uh, about Christ's gifts? You could pray that I can get through the sermon, hey? <coughs> Uh, well, a few things they tell us about Christ's gifts, right? The first thing they pray, uh, the first thing they tell us is that every Christian has gifts. Uh, they, these, are, these are not kind of talents that you're born with, but supernatural gifts that you're given when you become a Christian by the power of God's Spirit. And, and Paul says every Christian has them, right? Grace is given to each of us. Right, so, so if you're a Christian, uh, please don't tell me that you have no gifts, Right, some Christians think that's very, a very humble thing to say. Uh, the reality is it's not humble at all. It's quite proud because God says he's given you gifts. So when you say you've got no gifts, you're actually saying that God's a liar. Like that, that's not humble. That's quite proud. Right, so every Christian has gifts. Grace has been given to each of us. Uh, the second thing is, is that there's a wide variety of gifts. Uh, this isn't kind of as clear in this passage, but uh, there are several lists of gifts in the New Testament uh, and they're all very different. Uh, and that, that tells us that, that none of the lists uh, includes all the gifts that Christ's given. It also tells us uh, that there are probably plenty of gifts that aren't actually specified in the New Testament. Like I don't think we need to tally up all the gifts and say if you don't have one of these, you don't have a spiritual gift. There are probably as many spiritual gifts as there are Christians. Of course, there are ones that are specified, and we can assume that those are around. But uh, there is a wide variety of gifts, so we shouldn't feel kind of, what would you say, pigeonholed into particular types of gifts, particularly particular types of gifts that certain churches might major on. Right, our church, like maybe we're all about Bible teaching, right? So if you're not a teaching gift, then you might feel marginalised. I hope not, right? Like, there's all sorts of gifts, a third thing, uh, Christ has given each of us exactly the right gifts. There's not only a wide variety of gifts, but we each have exactly the gifts Christ wants us to have. Right? Christ has apportioned our gifts, Paul says. Christ has he's measured out our gifts. Right, so you and I have exactly the gifts Christ wants us to have. And that means that none of us should feel envious we shouldn't feel envious because we've got exactly the gifts that Christ wants us to have. He's sovereign over giving gifts. We should, we've got exactly the gifts and we shouldn't feel proud because these things are gifts that we've been given, not prizes that we've earned. Uh, each of us has been given gifts and we've been given exactly the right gifts. Fourth thing, uh, we should be faithful in using our gifts. And there are all sorts of reasons why we should be faithful, but uh, in this passage, I think the point is that we should be faithful in using our gifts because even, our, even though our gifts are free to us, they cost Christ everything. Right? Even, even though your gifts are free to you, they cost Christ everything. And that's what verses 9 and 10 are about. That kind of maybe slightly confusing section where Paul says that the fact that Christ has ascended 
means that he has also means that he also descended right to the lower earthly regions. <clears throat> right, what's Paul saying here? He's saying uh, that that Christ, the, the the glorious Son of God, uh, was willing to make himself nothing. Right, he was willing to, to humble himself and, and be obedient uh, to death on the cross, rejection, suffering, uh, sheer humiliation. He he bore a massive cost. Right, and he did that. He, he descended to that level uh, for you. Right, for you. So, so you uh, could be cleansed of your sin. So that your heart could be cleansed and washed clean, you see. And why is that important? Well, because now Christ has ascended and he's poured out his spirit and, and the Holy Spirit has to be poured into cleansed hearts, you see. So the fact that Christ descended and, and suffered the humiliation of the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, washing our hearts clean, that descent, uh, the descension of Christ, is that a word? Uh, mean, makes possible what Christ has done now. He's ascended and poured out his spirit into cleansed hearts and he's given us gifts. I may not be being, being very clear about that. But my, my point is that uh, you should be faithful in using your gifts because even though they're, they're free gifts to you, they cost Christ everything. The ultimate humiliation for the glorious Son of God in becoming a human being and giving of himself on the cross. Now, uh, all this talk about gifts, you might not know what your spiritual gifts are. So I just want to give you a few kind of practical tips to think about what, what might my gifts be and, and how can I use them. So the first thing is, uh, you should pray about it. You should pray about it like Christ has given you uh, gifts and you should ask Christ to show you what gifts he's given you. So please be praying about it. Uh, the second thing is you should ask yourself, uh, where is there a need in this body? Where can I see a need in the body? I think it's important to start here because Christ, we've just heard, you know, Christ has given us our gifts uh, not to, to build ourselves up, but to build up this body, his body. So the first thing you should ask, and I was sitting with some people earlier today who asked this exact question, uh, which is great. I said, where does this body need to be built up? Where are there needs in this body? And once you discover where the needs are, uh, you start serving. And when you've been serving for a little while, uh, you should ask yourself, am I actually good at this? That's, that's a good question to ask. right? If, you, if you're serving away and, and people are being built up, People are being encouraged, God's being glorified. Uh, you're probably on the right track. Uh, on the other hand, if, you, if you're not seeing any fruit, if perhaps you're just really frustrated in your service, uh, you should at least ask yourself, uh, what do I actually enjoy doing? What am I passionate about? Now, some of you perhaps, uh, maybe that grates on you, that whole idea, uh, because I think some Christians have bought into the idea that uh, if you're doing what God wants, to do, wants you to do, you're bound to be miserable. Right? If you're enjoying it, if you're delighting in it, if you're passionate about it, it's probably not your gift, right? Because you've got to be miserable. Christian service, right? It's sacrifice, it's costliness. You know. I mean? Now, of course, there should be elements of sacrifice and costliness. And I've already said it's, it's about needs in the body, not completely about you and your personal fulfillment. But the Lord Jesus said it delighted him to do his Father's will. So if you're serving in, in line with your gifting and something God has wired you to do, then it makes sense that you might enjoy that. You might delight in it. You might be passionate about it. So you should at least ask yourself, uh, what do I actually enjoy doing? 
Uh, but of course, uh, there at some of us, and, and I've been in this boat in the past, uh, you might enjoy doing things that you're not very good at. Let's be honest. Right? Uh, and so the other thing we should do is ask other Christians what they think. Right? The, reali- the reality is other Christians will usually give you a, a much more accurate assessment of your gifts than you will. Right? So you should ask someone who you trust, someone who's seen you serving, someone who knows you well, uh, what do you think my gifts might be? And see where that takes us. You can ask me that, right? right but this is, all this practical stuff's important uh, because if we want to keep building up this church, we have to express the full diversity of our gifts. Right? Christ has given each and every one of you to this church so that this church might be built up. So it's important that we express our diversity. And that's where verse 11 comes in. Right? Paul does list those four specific gifts. Oh, I say four gifts, you know, some people go on about the, the kind of fivefold ministry in these verses, but I think the last two, pastor and teacher, uh, they should really go together here. So I think there's four gifts here. Uh, so Paul says, uh, Christ himself gave uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, and the pastor teachers. Uh, the interesting thing here, having talked a lot about gifts, uh, is that these verses aren't really about gifts that are given to people, are they? Uh, they're actually uh, about people who are given as gifts. You see that? Christ has given the church these particular people who happen to be able to do particular things, right? But it's, it's the people who are the gifts to the church. Uh, but there's the apostles and prophets, right? And they are foundational gifts. I say that because in Ephesians 2, Paul said uh, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation of God's church is his word. The word that was spoken by the prophets in the Old Testament, the word that was spoken and written down by the apostles in the New Testament. Now, of course, the words of the prophets and apostles are now written down in your Bible. So that's why these, uh, these, uh, the apostles and prophets are really Christ's gifts to the church in the past. They were foundational gifts that that formed the foundation of the church. Uh, So uh, they're not gifts today, at least not in the same sense. Someone might have an apostolic type gift or a prophetic type gift, but not in the same sense as what Paul's talking about here. The the apostles and prophets that laid the foundation of the church. Evangelists, on the other hand, they are gifts for today. Evangelists, they're uh, messengers of the gospel. They're declaring the gospel, communicating the gospel. And that's important, right? Evangelists, they're not just uh, people who are kind of doing good things or uh, hanging out with people who aren't Christians or or even doing great apologetics around the gospel, giving a great defence for the gospel, right? They're actually communicating the gospel, saying the words of the gospel. Uh, And they're doing that in such a way uh, that people actually become Christians over time. Like people, uh, to use the imagery of verse 14, uh, people are being born again, right? They're becoming spiritual infants. Now, of course, not all Christians are gifted evangelists. I get that. Uh, But if your life has been transformed by the gospel, if you're someone who reads Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 and you're like, yes, I am a Christian who's received every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm a part of this church, um, the people of God then you are a messenger of the gospel that has transformed you. At least you can share how the gospel has changed your life. 
You've got a, a, a word to share in that sense. And then there's pastor teachers, uh, shepherds of the flock. Pastors, they protect, they nurture, uh, they feed the flock. And the main way they, they feed the flock is by teaching God's word. The same word that, that uh, saves us, that we're born again by and we become spiritual infants, it's that same word that leads us to maturity in Christ, uh, that, that builds us up in Christ as, as our pastors teach us. Uh, so my job and, and the job of the elders here at this church and the job of, of anyone who's engaged in, in kind of uh, word ministry in this church uh, is to feed you with God's word. Right, to, to, to build you up as you, as you are nourished on the Word of God. And that's the theme of all these gifts, isn't it? Uh, the apostles and prophets gave us the foundation of God's Word. The evangelists to declare the core of God's Word, the Gospel. Uh, the pastor teachers, uh, they build up the body of Christ as they feed people with God's Word. God's Word is central to all these gifts. The, the body of Christ will not be built up if God's Word is not central. People will be left in immaturity. That's what Paul's saying. God's word is central. If there's a church, find me a church where God's word is not central and it'll be an immature church. It's impossible to mature without these gifts, uh, the, the, uh, the, the word of God being preached and taught and, and God's people being fed uh, with his word. Uh, and what's the purpose of these gifts? Look at verse 12. These word gifts are given, Paul says, uh, to equip uh, the saints, God's people, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So my job as as a pastor teacher uh, is to equip all of us uh, with our diverse range of gifts to be ministers. That's interesting, right? Like I got ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, uh, but there's no category of ministers in the New Testament, apart from all of us being ministers. Like the word minister just means servant. So all of us are ministers. Right? And my job is to empower, to equip uh, all of us to be ministers, to be busy in ministry. Yeah? So what does that mean? It means that this church is not a church where the pastor does all the ministry. Right? In fact, in general, uh, we, don't, we really don't want any spectators in this church. I've said this before. Uh, if you're a regular here at Darab and Prezi, uh, our expectation is that you would be serving in time. Like we want you to settle in, we want you to be encouraged and build up and get connected with the gospel community, right? But our expectation is that you would be serving. Uh, and your expectation of us is that we should equip you to serve. You should expect that of us. That's what Paul says here. You should expect us to equip you so that you can use the gifts God's given you uh, as fruitfully as possible. So our expectation of you, we want you to pitch in and serve. No passengers, no spectators. Your expectation of us, uh, you should expect us to equip you. That's why uh, we want to run kids ministry training or training for people to lead gospel communities more effectively. Because we want to equip all of us uh, so that the body of Christ, this body might be built up to maturity. That leads to the fourth thing, right? If, if you're going to the gym uh, and you're doing kind of physical bodybuilding, uh, there's a pretty clear aim. I'm not sure what the end game is, but like you want bigger guns, uh, you want to build up your physical body, right? In the same way here, uh, there is an aim, like right? the aim we're, we're pursuing maturity. 
We're building up towards being mature. So in verses 13 to 16, Paul gives us four kind of descriptions of a mature individual, a mature church. Uh, The first description is unity. It comes up again, right? But in verses 1 to 6, it was unity that we had to guard. It was unity that we already had. In this case, it's unity that we have to reach. Paul says we have to attain unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity in the faith here, it's not about your subjective faith in God, like your personal faith in God. It's it's the actual content of the Christian faith, like the the core truths of the Christian faith, if you like. So the emphasis here is is unity uh, around the core truths of the Christian faith uh, as we learn them more and more deeply. A knowledge of the Son of God, on the other hand, that's uh, more about experience. It's more experiential. Right? It's not just about learning a particular truths about Christ in your head, the Son of God, but it's about those truths trickling into your heart so that you love Christ more, so that you know him more personally. Right? Knowledge there is intimacy, it's personal relationship, not head knowledge, but relational knowledge. So we want to be a church where uh, objectively people are getting clearer and clearer on the core truths of the faith, the Christian faith, uh, and subjectively people love the Lord Jesus more. People delight in him more, people are more satisfied in him. We want both of those things to be happening. Second goal of maturity, becoming Christ-like. Right? Paul says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. As we learn about Christ and, and grow in our love for Christ, uh, we actually want to become more like Christ. Right? And this is written uh, not to individuals, uh, but to the church. As a church, we want to be like Christ. Now, of course, we want that to be true of individuals as well, but I want you to think about it as a church. Uh, what is Christ like? Well, Galatians chapter 5. Christ is filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Christ is like. Someone who is filled with the Spirit, perfectly embodied those traits. So what about us as a church? Are we a loving church? We're filled with Christ's Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Are we a loving church? Are we a church that is self-controlled? Or are we quick to lash out? Are we a joyful church? Presbyterians aren't known for being joyful. Sadly, I mean, that's an indictment, isn't it? This is a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of God's gifts to us. If we're not a joyful church, we need to ask ourselves why. If you're not a joyful Christian, you need to ask yourself why. Our goal, both individually and corporately, is to become like Christ. We're filled with his spirit, uh, so we should bear the fruit of that spirit. The third goal is to be a church that speaks the truth. See that there in verse 15? We're going to talk a whole lot about this next week. I'm skimming over it today. But Paul says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Paul's contrasting here uh, in this verse uh, with the spiritual infants in verse 14. Now, I hope you know, if you've been around Darabin Prezi for a while, uh, we love children, uh, we love infants, we're not anti-infants, we're not anti-children in any way, shape or form, uh, but let's be honest, children have their limitations, don't they? Uh, and that's what Paul's talking about in verse 14. 
he identifies two big limitations of children. Uh, first of all, children are unstable. They're tossed back and forth by the waves. Uh, and secondly, children are, are a bit naive. Right? That they can be blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Now, I say this with Ada. Right? Ada uh, can be really excited about a particular game or toy or activity uh, for about five minutes. Right? You know, this is why the, the toy library is such a great concept. Because you just don't buy toys that they're going to be dis- they're not going to care about in two weeks. Like, go and borrow something, right? But that, that she's unpredictable. Kind of doesn't stick at something for a long period of time. Right? It's also uh, really easy to lead Ada astray. You can trick her quite easily. Right? She's naive like that. Right? And that's kind of charming in a three-year-old, isn't it? It's one of the things we love about kids. But as someone grows up, you expect a bit more than that, don't you? You expect them uh, to be able to stick at tasks for longer. You expect them to, to be able to hold down a job, to have discipline in how they manage their life. You expect them to be a bit less naive too, right? To, to have a kind of clearer convictions about who they are and how they want to live. Uh, that they're not just kind of absent-mindedly going with the flow of their culture, of their peers. Right? That, that's, that's part of growing up, whether you're a Christian or not. Likewise, our goal is that we would grow up as Christians. Right? That, that we would be less naive, that we would be more stable and mature in our faith. Right? And Paul says that will only happen as we speak the truth to one another. Right? It's as, you, as we speak the truth to one another, uh, that we'll be more able to discern true teaching from false teaching. We won't be as easily led astray. As we speak the truth to one another, uh, we'll be able to stand on our own two feet more. We'll be able to take responsibility for our own spiritual lives. Right? You won't need someone kind of calling you up every day to say, have you read the Bible or have you prayed? Like you might actually do that yourself. Right? That, that's a sign of maturity. Right? So, so as we speak the truth to one another, uh, we grow up towards maturity. One of, one of the things that happens also, a sign of Christian maturity, is that you become, uh, I guess, a more integrated person. And by that I mean uh, that when uh, you're a young Christian, an immature Christian, uh, you tend to act one way with these people and another way with those people. Right? There's not integration in your life. There's not, in, uh, there's not consistency. Right? Because your main concern it's not being like Christ, but whether other people like you. Right? So you're, you're, you're like a chameleon, like you can change and act differently. Right? But when you mature as a Christian, there's more integration, there's more integrity, more integration, more consistency in your life. Because you're clearer on who you are in Christ and how you want to live. That, that's a sign of maturity. And that happens as we speak the truth in love to one another. If you want to know more about what that looks like in practice, then you should come next week. Uh, But we speak the truth in love. And this is just where I want to land. Uh, We've got to get this balance, right? Truth in love. Uh, It's important to get that balance because uh, some of us here uh, have extremely acute heresy radars. Right? Like someone says something that's slightly off, you kind of start twitching and you kind of got the matches and the steak ready. You're kind of like, let's kind of... Like, right? Like, you're kind of all about winning the arguments, but it's hard to tell whether you love the people. See, like, high truth, low love. Uh, On the other hand, other people here are all about the love, 
Keep the peace, keep the community, keep the love. Even if you have to be a bit soft on this truth or that truth, or you know, just forget about them altogether because it's all about the love. We've got to be unified, right? Paul says if we're going to be built up as a church, we need truth and love. Right? John, John Stott says, uh, he's already mentioned twice today, John Stott, he says, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. We're, we've experienced that. Uh, and love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. Right? A, a mature church is one in which the truth of the gospel is spoken amongst us in love. Uh, so my hope, my prayer, I've been praying on my holidays, uh, is that as a church uh, we would give ourselves to building up this body. Right? Physical training is of some value. I'm not saying don't you know, be serious about training yourself and building up your physical body. That's a good thing, right? But let's make time to build up this body. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's give ourselves to, to walking worthily, living out the implications of the, all the blessings that we have received. Let's give ourselves to guarding the unity of this church. Let's not be quick to write people off, to say, I don't want to, I'll, I'll come to this church, but I'm going to not have anything to do with that person. No, let's guard our unity. Let's give ourselves uh, to expressing diversity. Pitch in, serve. You are Christ's gift to this church. We need you to express yourself. Uh, and let's give ourselves to pursuing maturity together. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, uh, we're so conscious of the areas in our own lives as individuals and, and perhaps uh, in the life of this church uh, where there's elements of immaturity. Uh, we long to grow, uh, to be more like our Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray that as a church we would commit ourselves uh, to building up this body. Uh, please help us, Father, to walk worthily, uh, to live out the implications of the gospel that we've received. Uh, please help us, Father, to, uh, to guard the unity of this church, uh, to work hard, to, to be quick to forgive, uh, to be slow to anger. Uh, give us uh, patience, we pray. Uh, Father, please help us to express the full diversity of our gifts in this church. Uh, and help uh, me and other key leaders to, to be uh, adept at equipping people and mobilising everyone in this church so we can work together. And we pray that as that happens, we would be uh, moving towards greater unity in the faith and, and love for our Lord Jesus, uh, that, that the actual maturity and Christ-likeness would be happening and you'd give us great joy in seeing this fruit. Uh, we pray in, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.